Now, before we look at our text, I'd like to go back to a question that Randy posed in our last meeting about the word Acropolis. And I didn't do a very good job of defining that precisely, so I'd like to redeem myself in part. Uh, The polis in Acropolis, of course, is the Greek word for city, metropolis a city of a large uh, region. So, acro is the uh, prefix in Greek which means high or lifted up. You think of acrophobia, that is, the fear of high places. So, acropolis, rather, here, is the high city. And in Athens, the Acropolis, which still survives from ancient Greece in that city today, if you see a picture of it, it's lifted up above the level of everything else around it. <clears throat> and, of course, the Pantheon was, Parthenon was erected on top of that. So <clears throat> with respect to Sardis, with that 1,500-foot cliff or plateau, above the lower city down in the Hermas Valley, you can understand why that region or that area of the city of Sardis was called the Acropolis. It was the higher city in distinction from the lower city down near the river in the valley below. At any rate, I hope that that is a more adequate and precise definition of the word Acropolis and It gives you a little more uh, flavor of the imagery of the word. All right, now turning to the passage in Revelation chapter 3, reading verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, And who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as is our custom in looking at these letters, we look to see if there's a narrative frame or a literary frame or a rhetorical frame uh, which kind of brackets the whole of the epistle. And I'll give you a moment to kind of scan and see if you see anything that would qualify as a kind of a framing device for this letter, sixth of the seven letters to the churches. If you start at verse 12 and then then look back up to verse 8, you will notice the last words in verse 12, my new name, the adjective added there. You notice in verse 8, the last words in verse 8, my name. This is the name of Jesus Christ, of course, 
And the new name is interesting in its appearance in verse 12. Not only does it enrich the name of Christ, he has a new name as a result of his incarnation, as a result of his taking on a human nature in union with his divine nature. But he may here be echoing a, a part of the history of the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia had been destroyed many times, and we'll comment on that further in detail. Last week, we, or last time we mentioned the 17 A.D. destruction of the city of Sardis, the previous church. Well, that earthquake which destroyed most of Sardis destroyed a good bit of Philadelphia as well. And Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor at that time, forgave the taxes of Sardis and of Philadelphia in order that they could rebuild. In Philadelphia, the city was renamed as a result of that generosity on behalf of the Roman Imperial <coughs> Command and given the name Neo Caesarea, which means the new city of Caesar. Well, it didn't actually take because it didn't eradicate the name Philadelphia, as you can see from our text, because even by the end of the century, Philadelphia wasn't known as Neo Caesarea. That was a name which had been given, but it was like a bad injection it didn't it didn't or bad vaccination it didn't take but that wasn't the only time that philadelphia was renamed the emperor vespasian vespasian was the roman emperor from 69 to 79 ad he's actually the father of titus the roman general who conquered jerusalem and destroyed it in 70 ad and titus his son would succeed hit succeed him that is vespasian as emperor of rome when his father died Nonetheless, Vespasian had a favorite wife whose name was Flavia, F-L-A-V-I-A, and he wanted to rename Philadelphia Flavia. So Philadelphia has had at least two new names, neither one of which took, because we don't know Philadelphia as Flavia, nor do we know it as Neo Caesarea. We know it as Philadelphia before the name took. But the new name of Christ is rich beyond compare, and so uh, we'll talk about that in somewhat detail later on. So there may be an illusion there. But I'm getting ahead of myself, perhaps. Uh, what does the name Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. Yes, it means brotherly love. It's the Greek word for love of a brother. Philo, love, Adelphia, brother. Now, the brothers in this instant are part of the royal family of the Lydian dynasties or Lydian descendants which ruled over this region in the 3rd and 2nd century B.C. Attalus II and his brother Eumenes. Eumenes was the younger of the two, but they were very close. In fact, they were very loyal to one another, had a deep natural affection for one another, and because of that, around the year 200 B.C., they built the city of Philadelphia as a memorial to their <clears throat> kind of steadfast brotherly affection and loyalty. As a result of that uh, uh, foundation, the city established public celebration of the, of the founding of the city with the uh, holding of annual athletic games. Of course, Greek athletic games were very famous in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world. And here in Philadelphia, on into the 3rd century A.D., these <clears throat> annual athletic events memorialized or remembered Attalus II and Eumenes and the foundation of the city that they built in their honor, <clears throat> namely Philadelphia. One other point here, you'll notice that 200 B.C. for the foundation of the city makes Philadelphia the youngest of the seven churches. All the other six have a history which goes far back <clears throat> into the first millennium B.C. So this is, the, <clears throat> shall we say, the baby city of the seven. Now, <clears throat> as for the city itself, geographically, it's located on a major road which we've mentioned before. It is a road which connects Pergamon to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea, all of those 
uh, members of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, this road was an open door, an open door of commerce, an open door of trade, an open door of caravans flowing along this road as it went mostly north and south. If you remember the map or if you go back to the map, which lays out the <coughs> geographical location of all seven of the churches. So this open door, which was a commercial or economic open door, was also a vehicle for exporting a particular brand of civilization. And what was popular amongst these two brothers, what was popular at this time, was Hellenism, or the Greek civilization from the West. And so... Philadelphia became a central place of exporting Hellenism, or Greek culture, to Central and Northern Asia Minor. Hellenism, the culture of Greece, including the Greek language. You can see some of the foresight of the province of God in spreading the Greek language in Asia Minor, preparing the way for Paul's Greek letters to the churches in those areas. Greek language, part of Hellenism, Greek customs, Greek philosophy, Greek religion, Greek literature. In fact, one writer has called Philadelphia Little Athens. So famous was it for this Greco, for this Greek Hellenism, which had been, had taken over the intellectual centers of the city. This was the new learning. This was the new learning, that even including religious devotion, which was promoted by Philadelphia from 200 B.C. on, Greek Hellenism, the popular gospel of enlightened paganism. Yes, Greek Hellenism, the popular and attractive gospel of enlightened paganism before the rise of the Roman Empire. Philadelphia thus... <clears throat> was an open portal for pagan Hellenistic thought, culture, and worship. The Greek gods were now replaced to, were replaced as superior to the old Lydian and Syrian gods, even though the Syrian and Seleucids controlled the region overall. The times they were changing from 200 B.C. on in Philadelphia. Now, there's one other point to note. <clears throat> like Pergamon, Philadelphia was a military outpost. The road that passed through the city was traversed by the legions of the Roman Empire, just as it was in Pergamon. So, this road and this city guarded the eastern borders of the Roman Imperium, protecting the caravans of commerce, but also preventing, in part, any attacks from the eastern enemy, namely the Parthians and other marauding uh, uh, tribes, maintaining an open door of Philadelphia's economy and culture. So there's a military presence here, as well as a burgeoning economic and commercial presence. Now, as if that were not enough, Philadelphia was not only a city of brotherly love and commerce and military garrisons, it was a city of earthquakes. Repeatedly, the tectonic shifts underneath the city shook the city with damage and death, more frequently perhaps than others in this region. One ancient writer even went so far as to say, that the citizens of Philadelphia were afraid to live inside the city and existed in tents outside the city walls. Now, that may have been a slight exaggeration, but it was certainly true when that noted earthquake of 17 AD struck the city, that same earthquake which destroyed most of Sardis. Many of the citizens of Philadelphia fled outside the gates of the city to the open stretches 
beyond the city walls. And they were afraid to go back in uh, during the night and the day. So there's a great deal of potential imagery here from the historical and geographical context of the location and the history of the city itself. And that's what I'd like to concentrate on exploring. The imagery which jumps out at you here if you understand the history of the city itself. Let's begin with verse 7. And the image of the key of David. Now this is actually a quotation from the Old Testament. The key of David, one who opens and will not shut, and who shuts and will not open. It comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. So because it's from an Old Testament prophetic text, it's talking about the messianic kingdom. Jesus having the keys to open the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and no one will shut it against that person, or to shut the kingdom of God, and no one will open it to such a person. Jesus uh, claiming that key of divine sovereignty with respect to the fulfillment of Isaiah 22, 22. He is the messianic king of that messianic kingdom. However, in addition to that, we've noticed that these titles that Jesus uses to introduce himself in each of the seven letters have already been introduced to us in the first chapter. So if you turn back to verse 18 of chapter 1, you will notice that he talks about holding the keys. Here in chapter 3, he's talking about holding the key. It's the key of David. But in verse 18 of chapter 1, it's the key of death and hell, or Hades. That suggests that the image here is uh, in chapter 3 is multiform. That is, it has an enrichment or an abundance of, of potential uh, built into it. It's also a key of eternal consequence. You could say that's implicit in the messianic key, and yes it is, but he makes it explicit with respect to the eternal consequences of death and hell itself. So this key, which he holds, is a key of sovereignty over life and death, over existence and, <clears throat> and condemnation. Contrast this key, which is, uh, shall we say, established and, shall we say, solid in its effect. Contrast this key to the fragile state of the city of Philadelphia, particularly with all the earthquakes shaking it from time to time. The kingdom to which this key belongs is always accessible as a refuge. You do not need to be afraid to go into it at any time. It will protect you from all circumstances. And this key always secures you in that kingdom, in that domain which Jesus has brought. It secures you as being secure in a citadel, a really, truly impregnable and invincible kingdom. So you do not need to be afraid of going in or going out Because he who opens and shuts and shuts and opens keeps you and protects you. All right, now down to verse 8. And the phrase open door, to which I've already alluded, the history of the city was an open door to commerce and trade and to the culture of Hellenism Greco-Romanism, when the Romans came to conquer Asia Minor, Roman military legions as they marched across the roads towards the east. But this open door is a little more than the secular or the commercial or the merely economic. This open door is an open door to proclaim the gospel, that as commerce moves through this city on that road, so The gospel moves through this city on that open road. Even though they are weak, 
even though they are not as strong as some of the other churches. They have kept the word of God. They have not denied the name of Jesus Christ, which is the name above every name. And so he has given them in their weakness, but in their faithfulness to him, he has given them an open door for proclaiming the gospel. That is the reason some commentators call Philadelphia the missionary church of the seven churches. The open door which is commended here is an open door to spread the gospel far and wide along those roads and to all those who come in contact with the Christians in Philadelphia in whatever, in whatever context of commercial, economic, or what have you. On to verse 9 now. We've already commented on the synagogue of Satan language, which occurs in chapter 2, verse 9, as well as the Jews who say they are but are not, citing Paul's comment in Romans 2, 28 and 29. So I will not elaborate any further upon that. But I want to comment on the tone of the commendation of Christ here. Christ says he will make the Jews come and bow down at your, that is the Christian's feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Now it is conceivable that the bowing down which is referred to here is the Jews being subjugated to Christianity, being put under the dominion of Christians. I think that's a false reading of the text in its context because <clears throat> this is a letter written to a church with no criticism <clears throat> or negativity about it. It's a letter written with the tone of brotherly love and kindness about it. So these Jews who come down and bow at the feet <clears throat> of the Christians are bowing not out of fear, not out of subjugation, not out of conquest, <clears throat> not out of being even hated, which the Christian would not do. A Christian would not hate a Jew, wouldn't hate anyone, called not to hate anyone. So <clears throat> this, this Jewish activity here is the activity of those who are thankful, thankful that they too now experienced the brotherly love of the Christians and the loving kindness of Christ himself. They will know that I have loved you, even as they will know that I have loved them in terms of their own conversion and salvation. So this bowing of the Jews here is a reflection of Jews who are converted and are bowing in thanksgiving, bowing in praise and rejoicing that they have found the true Messiah of the Old Testament, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God and Savior of sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. It is from the tone of these remarks that one sees that this is a reference to Jews being regenerated and converted by the gospel of that open road or open door, by that gospel of the kingdom of the key of David, that gospel which speaks to them about their need for a redeemer and a savior. Their focus is then shifted. It shifted away from their ethnic background. It shifted towards the true Israel of God. And that true Israel is Christ himself and those who are bound to them. And so they come and rejoice and bow before him as those who have joined themselves to the eschatological Israel of God. Jew and Gentile alike with no ethnic distinction and no inequality. The love of Christ drawing even these elect Jews into his kingdom, drawing them into the fellowship of Philadelphia that is a brotherly love, brotherly and sisterly love, and the communion of the saints, uh, Jew and Gentile alike. Now you might ask, am I suggesting a future conversion? of the Jewish people. No, I'm not. 
not because it wouldn't be a wonderful thing to see, but because I don't think it is taught in the scriptures, and that's a separate discussion. <clears throat> but I don't want you to make a leapfrog from what I've said about what I think this verse means to a future, uh, shall we say, millennial, a pre-millennial conversion of the Jews, which I do not think is part of the teaching of the inspired Word of God. There will be Jews converted until Christ returns. There will be those out of Israel who will come into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. They will repent and believe. I mentioned earlier the Jews for Jesus movement of the 70s, and those, some of those churches are still in existence, and that movement still flourishes. So <clears throat> we continue to see God drawing Jewish hearts and souls into his everlasting kingdom. And that is, of course, something we're, comp- we're very thankful for and we're open to. And, of course, <clears throat> rules out any spirit of anti-Semitism in our hearts because of our love for all mankind in that sense that we wish that they would all come to the gospel of salvation through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Now, verse 10 has this phrase, hour of testing, which appears to be universal. An hour of testing, which is cosmic, or worldwide in its extent, because you'll notice that it comes upon the whole world according to that verse. Well, what is this time of testing which comes upon the whole world? Well, I don't think it's anything other than the final clash. The final clash between Christ and the unbelieving world. In such an eschatological crisis, Christians will be preserved, steadfast, and loyal, even as Christ himself will be steadfast in preserving them in his love for them. They will not be lost to the enemy in that clash, nor will they be cast into the lake of fire in that ultimate conflict. When the final clash comes which will extend over the whole earth, those mirrored in the Lord Jesus Christ will be secure. Through their union with him, they will be protected and secure. Now, more of this is recorded in chapter 20 of this book of Revelation, but I think that there is a, shall we say, a projection or anticipation of it in Christ's words here to the Church of Philadelphia. Let us be clear. This verse underscores the loyalty to Christ as loyalty, which is a mark of a city, namely this city and its history, and a mark of those who, like them, are Philadelphians. That is, they're loyal to their brothers and sisters in Christ and loyal to Jesus himself with a steadfast brotherly love to one another. So I'm suggesting that the cosmic and final eschatological crisis may be anticipated by local and temporal crises in Philadelphia, whatever they may have been. None of them are recorded here, but on verse 11 we have a suggestion that they may be imminent. This is to note that the contemporary church is reflected in the final eschatological church and vice versa. The final church is reflected in the contemporary church. Or to say it in another way, the church militant is reflected in the church triumphant, and the church triumphant is reflected in the church militant. This is this interface between the now and the not yet. This is this interaction, or this interrelationship, or this mirror symmetry between what happens in the local or contemporary Uh, setting and scene and what will occur at the final and consummate setting and scene. So that phrase, church militant, which is the contemporary church, 
And Church Triumphant, which is the eschatological church, is a good way of referring to this interface or interreaction between the two. And as an elaboration of that comment, we go to verse 11, in which Jesus suggests that he is coming quickly. So here in verse 10, we have a suggestion of an ultimate, final, and consummate coming, something that's going to include the whole earth in its pattern of judgment and finality. Here in verse 11, Jesus is saying he's coming quickly or that there is an approaching testing or persecution or tribulation for the church in Philadelphia. The two then are interlaced. They are interwoven. They're like mirror reflections of one another, the one anticipating the other. Perhaps there was a local persecution during the Roman imperial era in Philadelphia. We noted that in this region of Asia Minor, already in the second century A.D., Polycarp of Smyrna had been burned at the stake. And we remember Antipas in the church of Pergamon in chapter 2, who had already died for the faith and been martyred for Christ's sake even in the first century. Regional or local persecution was possible during the reign of Domitian, who was the emperor in 96, died in 96 AD, and Trajan, who followed him and his letters to Pliny and Pliny's letters to him, in which there is persecution in Asia Minor in the early second century, in the early 100s AD. These local or regional persecutions were not empire-wide. That was delayed until the third and fourth centuries in Roman history, though there wasn't like a pogrom over the whole imperial world. But there were these local outbreaks and eruptions. And so Jesus is noting that in coming, coming quickly, this testing may be coming to them in their now time rather than the not yet delay of verse 10. So we're reminded again, as I said, of this interface between persecuting the church in history and the final clash between Christ and Satan at the end of this age. This age in which we live, the interadventual age, this interadventual age contains ongoing persecution of those who love Christ, suffering for righteousness' sake, as well as a reminder that a great eschatological clash of tribulation and judgment is still in front of us. The little trial that the Philadelphian Christians experience now is a reminder that there's a great trial and tribulation for tribulations for Christians not yet. The one is a slight mirror of the other. And that's the reason that we have here in these two verses a reference to the not yet as well as the now. The not yet in verse 10, the now in verse 11, or I should say the imminent now in verse 11. All right. We've reached the time for taking our little break. Uh, I've been doing all the talking. I'm wondering if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to raise. The name of the road. The road? Yes. Um, uh, what, what was it called? Yes, it, 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 it's, it's just a major commercial road. Yep, my mind's gone blank. I'm sorry, Randy. They did, there was a name for it, but it, it's escaped me. No, I didn't. I didn't say it. I said it was just a road that connected the seven or four of the seven churches. There's a there's a there's a road also that splits off of it. It goes over to Ephesus, and so this this road may actually have had a different name than the name for that road that went past Ephesus. But I'll I'll look it up. Well, go ahead and stretch your legs.
All right, I mean, now to notice one other thing about, a verse, about verse 11. It contains a word which may be an allusion to an element of Philadelphia's history and culture. Notice my method here today is to examine the phrases or words in these verses in terms of that historical context. Now, the word I'm referring to is the last word in the verse in the New American Standard Translation, the word crown. A crown to be possessed by the Christians at Philadelphia. This may be an allusion to the crown of victory awarded at the close of the athletic games in Philadelphia, which we mentioned earlier were celebrated every year well into the third century A.D., Now, that crown, which was awarded to the victor at the games, that crown, of course, was surrendered year by year, unless the same person happened to win it. But Christ's crown of victory is awarded by grace through faith and is not lost. It is not lost with the next annual season of athletic games or athletic contests. No one will take this crown from the faithful, loyal Philadelphia Christian as no one will take the crown of victory from Christ himself. He is victorious over all his foes, both now and not yet, and he grants the same privilege to those united to him in grace, love, and faith. He will bestow upon them a crown which cannot be removed crown which cannot be lost, crown which cannot be forfeited, crown which belongs to him and he bestows as a gift of the same character as the one that he wears in his victorious session at the right hand of God the Father. On to verse 12. This verse has more cumulative allusions to the history of the city than any of the other verses that we've noted. We begin with the word pillar. The overcomer will become a pillar in the temple of my God. This is likely a reflection on the custom of placing figures of gods and goddesses and rulers on pillars in pagan temples. Christ will make himself, make his people themselves pillars. They will be pillars in the true and eschatological temple, the temple of God in heaven. Now consider also that in this city prone to earthquakes and its results, namely temple pillars toppled and reduced to rubble, Christ promises his pillars permanence and indestructibility. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. In other words, he'll be established there. Now that not going out is also capable of alluding to the need to go out of the city and its temples for safety to the open rural surroundings during earthquakes and their increasing frequency. No no need to leave the city of God because it is secure from earthquake and destruction eternally. He will not go out from it anymore. He will be established in 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 the temple of my God and in my city. Now notice that the next phrase, the name of my God, is parallel to my new name at the end of the verse, which also links it up to my name in verse 8. But here, the name of my God gives an emphasis of certainty which is stronger than just the emphasis upon uh, uh, the, the name of Christ himself. Well, how so? The name of God is duplicated in the name of Christ 
as a double divine assurance that the Christian believer belongs to Almighty God as he belongs to the Almighty Son of God. Jesus can call God the Father, my God. He does so in relationship to his incarnational state. But he is referring to his almighty, eternal, and everlasting Father when he uses that phrase. And, of course, he has his own name in at the end of the verse as a secure blessing as well. So Jesus says to the sinner saved by grace, you are mine, and on top of that, you are my God and fathers also. Do not fear earthquake, sword, or fire, or pagan Hellenism, or any other threat to your existence or to your eternal life. They may kill the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. There is a double assurance. The name that secures your overcoming victory, the name that secures your place in the temple of the Lord God, the name that secures your place in the New Jerusalem, which he also elaborates here, the name that secures that is the twofold name of God the Father and God the Son. God the Father who is the Father of the Son and God the Son who is the Son of the Father. They have secured your salvation. They have secured your security. They have secured your everlasting joy, peace, and benediction. Double security here. Just as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I, have no, I, I hold my own in my hand, and no man can take them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than I, holds them in his hand. So there's that double security that John was, ref, was <coughs> referring to or recording in the Gospel, and here is a reflection of it with Jesus referring to it again in terms of his and his Father's preservation of those that belong to them. Now the name New Jerusalem appears here. This is the name of the city. This is the name to which the Christian, the city to which the Christian belongs. It's the Jerusalem above, not the Jerusalem below. That is our home, a Jerusalem new and eternal, spread out in the heavens with eternal walls, eternal gates, eternal confines for the saints to rest eternally. This is Jerusalem the golden indeed. As we walk away from this letter, we are assured of an eschatology of comfort and beauty. Yes, beauty in that new Jerusalem, beauty in the beauty of beauteous character of Christ himself. An eschatology of comfort and beauty for those living in a city of tenuous uncertainty and approaching, if not present, tribulation and testing. Christ says, you belong to me and the triune God. You are folded into my glory city, the heavenly Jerusalem. You are given my name. My new name is upon you. Now that may strike you as strange, but it went over that imagery in, <clears throat> with respect to the uh, uh, city at Sardis, <clears throat> this new name is the name that Christ has as a result of completing his work in the incarnational form. His name is no condemnation because his new name is righteous justification. Now there's a theme that should cheer our hearts the day after Reformation Day. Reformation gave us, through Luther and Calvin and others, this great rejoicing in a no condemnation uh, <clears throat> credit to our account on the basis of Christ being credited and condemned in our place. So that he, being righteous, takes on the opposite, takes on the condemnation which he doesn't deserve which is our condemnation, then he allows us to take what is in him, namely the righteousness, and count it to our credit, put it to our account, 
hold us fully justified in the sight of God because he has borne the condemnation. So his new name is not condemned. His new name is justified before his Father in heaven. His new name is not unrighteous, which you would think he, you, if you thought of him as charged with sin in that bloody cross upon which he dies. His new name is righteous. I am righteous forevermore. And we become the righteousness of God in him. His new name is no death and destruction. My new name is alive from the dead in resurrection. His old name could be, could be supposed to be still in a tomb, still buried, still under the power of the grave, still liable to damnation, taking sin upon himself. But no, his new name is alive from the dead. He is not in a tomb. He is not buried in Palestine. He has been raised up and made alive again by resurrection from the dead. That's his new name because that's the new element that he contributed to his own history when he was buried and rose again from the grave. And finally, his new name is no sin and guilt. My new name is without sin and guilt atoned. You can think of him on the cross as being guilty. As Paul says, he became sin who knew no sin for our sake. He takes that penalty, that guilt upon himself. He takes that that sin upon himself. He bears it vicariously as a substitute. But his new name is without silt, without sin and guilt paid for, guilt atoned for, guilt washed away. That had not happened in the history of redemption through a particular human individual because no human individual who was a sinner by nature could have done it, could have accomplished it. It took a human nature which was not sinful, was not uh, guilty, was not uh, guilty of any original or actual sin. That's what it took. It took history to be perfected in that one by his incarnation. And so those historical events are absolutely crucial. That historical crucifixion, that historical burial, that historical resurrection from the grave, those are not myths, they are not fables, they are not fairy tales, they are not imagination. They are the stuff, the warp and woof of, of everyday history. And in so doing, Christ taking that to himself redeems us who live in everyday history and who have all of those faults and foibles and weaknesses in our own nature. He takes it upon himself in order to pay for that nature, to atone for it, to, to uh, triumph over, to save us from that nature. So to the brothers and sisters of the city of love, You belong to the eschatological and eternal Philadelphia. Any questions about this letter? Mary is coming. Yes, Mary. It's not, it's not impossible that he could be alluding to the pillars of the temple of Solomon, but because those, temp, those pillars were gone by the time this was written, it's more likely that for the Philadelphians the image that would resonate would be the pagan temples which were all, all over their city. I'm not saying it's in, impossible, but I think it's more likely that he's referring to the temples which did fall and, and were reduced to rubble in their experience. It could be a contrast indeed. Because throughout the Bible, he says things like, it is completed, it is established, it is finished, it is done. Um, it's yes. And then that's what he gives 
But even those pillars don't survive. They don't survive the Babylonians, 586, and they don't survive Titus in 70 AD. And, of course, they're not the same pillars. But nonetheless, the symbolism, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's more likely that these are uh, pagan references to their in their everyday experience, temples that they saw or were aware of. Thanks. Any other comments or observations? Let's close in prayer. The revelation of Christ to the churches is amazing to behold and to contemplate, Lord. We ponder to the good of our souls and to the peace of our conscience. And we thank you, O Lord, that there are even images which are beyond us in their depth and richness. So help us as we meditate upon these truths, particularly the lovely portrait of that new Jerusalem which is here and those pillars which are in that eternal temple, the pillars of the individual believers that Christ has secured. What a great privilege to be part of that golden and everlasting city. And we give you thanks, even as those who bow before you alongside and along with the Christians of Philadelphia, we give you thanks and praise for delivering us from this evil generation and for securing us in an everlasting kingdom to, which belongs to him who holds the key of David. We thank you in the name of great David's greater son, Jesus our Lord. Amen.